Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, everyone. Just before we start the show, I, I wanted to take a second to say a few words about our, our very kind sponsors. 100 Resilient Cities is a part of the Rockefeller Foundation, which which you'll probably know is one of the world's largest charitable endowments. 100 Resilient Cities is is focused on, on helping cities around the world become more resilient to the, the social, physical and economic challenges of the 21st century. They're doing some excellent projects in terms of, you know, environmental sustainability, in terms of economic sustainability, and just in terms of, you know, making life generally better for everyone in cities from Manchester to Miami to Melbourne to Montevideo. You can find out lots more, including reading up on some of those fantastic projects at their website, which is 100resilientcities.org. Anyway, now on with the show. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello. I'm John Elledge, and this is Skyline's The Cinemetric Podcast. One of the the biggest dichotomies or contradictions or paradoxes, or whatever you want to call it, about about cities in general is kind of the relationship to wealth and poverty, I think. You know, cities are cities are big generators of wealth to an extent that the only reason we have industrial civilizations at all is because we kind of cluster in very large numbers and kind of like start trading with each other they're the sites of huge economic opportunity the richest places on earth are cities the richest people on earth own large chunks of cities and yet they're also sites of enormous poverty you know some of the the sort of shabbiest living conditions you will find on this planet also exist in cities so so What's that about? How big a problem is that? That's what we are going to talk about this week. And to do that, I am joined by an expert in, in urban poverty. I mean, that's a fair description. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, John. My name is Sarah Collinbrander. I'm a senior researcher at the International Institute for Environment and Development here in London. Okay. No, we'll, we'll get into the topic in a second. But like, tell me more about the uh, International Institute for Environment and Development, because I, I don't know that much. I'm... Oh, I'm sorry to hear it. You're missing out, John. Uh the International Institute for Environment and Development, or IIED, because otherwise it's a bit of a mouthful, was founded in the early 1970s by a woman called Barbara Ward. Uh, and at that time, there were two really distinct communities in the world working on international issues. There were the people who were focused on poverty reduction, development, uh, and there were the people who were focused on environmental sustainability, and never the twain shall meet. 
Uh, and this woman, Barbara Ward, was a real visionary who saw that you are not going to be able to address global poverty unless you improve the environment those people live in, and you're not going to be able to address environmental issues unless people are wealthy and prosperous enough to be able to care for the land, air and water around them. It kind of sounds like that's that's quite a sort of urbanist approach to things then, if you're kind of like looking at those social and economic and environmental issues kind of as a package that kind of fits quite nicely with all the, with all the nonsense we talk, really. Well, as it happens, IIED works across a range of different issues, natural resources, climate change, sustainable markets, but we have a large and very prestigious urban team, which I've been lucky enough to join recently. So we've been chatting a bit about why urban poverty is, is quite difficult to measure. Why is this an issue? So the first reason is basically that historically, poverty has been concentrated in rural areas. When most people think of poverty, they think primarily of subsistence farmers living remotely without access to any of the infrastructure that we equate with cities. That is becoming less true. An increasing proportion of people live in cities. Uh, it passed the halfway mark of global population in 2008. Uh, and a growing proportion, proportion of them don't have the money necessary to buy goods and services to have a decent quality of life. So basically, worldwide, we have two measures of poverty. The first measure is based on money. Um, many of you will know the dollar a day metric that is used by the World Bank, for example. If you live in a city and you have to pay for rent and water and electricity and food, a dollar a day is not going to do it in pretty much any city in the world. By the time you get to somewhere like London or New York, that's kind of... <laughs> I think a dollar a day pays for about seven minutes of my rent. <laughs> it's <insane>. Some <laughs> yeah. tiny fraction. Obviously, it's a meaningless figure without, without that kind of context. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and the second way of measuring poverty looks at what is the actual bundle of services and goods that you have. And even there, the standard bundle that's used by the United Nations and other agencies was designed for rural areas. So they consider people to have access to decent sanitation if they have a pit latrine. A pit latrine is just not adequate if you live in a crowded informal settlement in Dhaka because when it overflows, all of your neighbours are going to get sick. How are you going to empty it when you have no space around it? Where are you going to dig your new one when it becomes full? We need a measure for poverty that reflects the realities of life in cities. So can I just check a pit latrine is pretty much exactly what you'd think a pit latrine is? It's just it is a, a hole in the ground and if you're lucky you might have a seat. Okay, cool. Well, that's... I mean, I'm sort of imagining us keeping up with the Joneses thing where, like, you know, one community is really smug about the fact they've got a seat. Um, just before we move on, I kind of find this idea that when we imagine poverty, we imagine rural poverty quite interesting. Because I'm wondering how, I'm sure that's how it's described in the development community a lot of the time. But I don't know whether this is kind of, uh, basically, I don't know whether Britons are weird. But I think when, when we think about poverty in this country, we probably do think more about sort of, you know, this, this sort of Oliver Twist Victorian slums kind of thing, rather than rather than people on, like, like rural people are often quite wealthy, I think, or, or rather like rural poverty is, is if anything, under-discussed in this country. Is that? Is that a developed world thing or a specifically British thing, do you think? I think you're right to say that it's now, that what I've just said is now primarily a developing world perspective. But historically, that's also been true for the UK. When the UK cities were really starting to take off in their 1800s, the huge growth of their populations was primarily because of rural migrants moving to urban areas in search of work in these new factories that were springing mm. up. And there was this constant narrative that echoes today in Charles Dickens, Elizabeth Gaskell, and so on, about whether these rural migrants should in fact return home where they belong, where they had healthier lifestyles, even if there was in practice much less opportunity in the countryside of Britain at that time. So I think maybe the UK and, and some other developed countries have moved beyond that story a bit, but it remains a part of our period of urbanisation. Mm. 
There was a very interesting point on Melvin Bragg did a, a radio series about, about the north of England a couple of years ago. And one of the, the points made in that was that people moved to the industrial cities because their lives would be better there. It wasn't because like they desperately wanted to live in, in slums. It's because like you would have, you know, a bit of spare time. And, you know, spending money in a way, if you were kind of a subsistence farmer, you wouldn't have those things. So even though we now sort of think of them as sites of enormous poverty, and they were, at the time, they were also places people moved to because of the opportunity. And I suppose that's kind of what we're seeing in the in the developing world now, right? Absolutely. Uh, and there's, there's two kinds of opportunity there. There's the economic opportunity. So maybe just a few members of a family will move to a city, and that way they've diversified their sources of income and got some security should a flood or a drought come. But there's also a, a social and a cultural opportunity associated with moving to cities. So for example, traditionally women in much of sub-Saharan Africa have been unable to own land because it's passed down through the male line father to son. That doesn't hold true anymore in urban areas where land can be purchased. And so women have an opportunity to acquire assets uh, and to take part in an economy that they wouldn't be able to do in a rural area. So there's a whole range of opportunities associated with urbanisation. So do we have any idea of the scale of urban poverty or is the problem that you're, you're, you're pointing to that we, we, we don't really? We have a bare minimum. So the United Nations Urban Division, UN Habitat, estimates that about 880 million people live in slums around the world. The problem with this is that their criteria of slums is based on the one we talked about before. It's defined as decent quality housing that's not overcrowded, which is more than three people sleeping in a room, uh, so-called improved water, and so-called improved sanitation, both of which are not a meaningful metric for safe, reliable, affordable services. If you were to put in any of those criteria, the number would very easily jump to a couple of billion people which would be half of the world's urban population living in what, in meaningful terms, is poverty. And that's that's kind of a number that, you know, that was the entire population of the world as recently as, like, some point in the 20th century, right? Absolutely. It? Uh, yeah, it's a so vast, incomprehensible yeah. number. So if, if, if the UN is doing a, a bad job of this, is anyone doing a better one? Some of the best work, actually, on this is coming out of the places you wouldn't expect. There are a growing number of cities around the world where local governments are starting to partner with community-based organisations to go out and do really detailed enumeration of informal settlements. They are going around with uh, GPS systems and tagging every service system that there is. So here is a piped water, here is a piped water outlet, here is a community toilet, here is an open drain that creates risk. Uh, and so you're getting these incredibly nuanced descriptions of what the reality is there. And then these local governments are actually working with those communities to understand what it means to be poor. So perhaps two people live in a slum, but one person owns their shack and the other person rents. And so that's a difference in exactly how poor you are and your opportunities to develop that asset. Uh, so I think there's great work coming out of this across Southeast Asia, Philippines, Cambodia, Thailand, and some really great work in Southern Africa, Namibia, Botswana. But we need to see this replicated at a much larger scale because we need the data before you can tackle the problem. Okay, so so we have a limited understanding of how, how big the problem is. Do we think it's getting worse? I hate to be the harbinger of bad news, but yes, we do. I think the proportion of people living in urban poverty is starting to fall, but the absolute number is increasing. So the mm. pace of urban population growth is outpacing these improvements in extending services. By 2050, urban areas around the world are expected to grow by 2.5 billion people. 90% of that growth is in Asia and Africa. I think China, India and Nigeria alone account for about a third of that growth, if not more. A huge number of these countries 
have in place policies to deter rural migrants, either explicitly, so people are bound to particular areas or blocked from moving to cities by law, or implicitly, where they just, cities are just unwilling to make the space or make the services available to people who are moving there. There is absolutely no evidence that those kind of policies actually slow urban growth. There is only evidence that it means that you don't get the economic opportunities and benefits associated with urbanization. Can I just clarify though? Why, if 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 the benefits aren't there anymore, why are people moving to cities in that scenario? Like, why, why would they uproot themselves if if actually the opportunities aren't there? Even without some of these basic systems in place, the opportunities in cities might still be greater than they would be in rural areas, uh, and people will move to seek that out. So there is evidence that in most cities in Africa, for example, infant mortality and life expectancy are better in cities than they are in, in countryside. That average hides large variations, so you might have higher infant mortality in some of the worst slums, for example. But overall, people are right to perceive that they are probably going to get more economic, social, educational opportunities if they move to an urban area. The second part of this is that if you look at it from the perspective of a household or a community, you want to diversify your risk. And so having some people live in poverty in cities, having some income, and some people live in poverty in rural areas with a different source of income means that you as a family have a greater chance of confronting the next risk or catastrophe that comes your way. So so what sort of environment, I mean, I realise it's very difficult to generalise about these things, but that's, I'm a journalist, I'm still going to ask. What sort of environment will people um, be finding when they when they move to these kind of rapidly developing world cities? Like, what Do you have any sense of like what a what these slums look like uh as you say they're they're really different if you go to somewhere like india or bangladesh uh, informal settlements are in, particularly around some of these mega cities mumbai uh, dhaka uh, bangalore informal settlements tend to be incredible incredibly high density uh very very crowded spaces very vibrant in terms of the huge diversity of entrepreneurial activity and enterprises that are going on the uh people coming from all over the country or across the region. If you go to some of the smaller cities in sub-Saharan Africa, where most African urban growth is taking place, it's much more sprawling. A lot of people will still depend on agriculture for a part of their livelihood, living around the periphery. Um, they might depend more on natural resources, such as urban forests and urban rivers, to get some of their fuel, food and water. But you will have this shared situation that uh, people are more likely to live in squalor, through no fault of their own, but entirely because that basic infrastructure to manage the costs of high density is not in place. Mm. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And then those, those sort of African suburbs, for want of a better word, the, kind of the, the relatively low-density places, like would they, to Western eyes, would they look urban? Or is it kind of like village settlements kind of attached to the edge of Lagos or wherever it may be? So a lot of them would, a lot of them might look uh, like villages. You know, they've got maybe a few thousand inhabitants, but they're growing very fast. But a lot of the towns we're talking about are, say, less than half a million people will um, be defined as a small town. That's bigger than Bonn. But yeah, okay, that's crazy. That's a lot yeah. of people. Um, I'm trying to think what's that in, in UK terms. That's probably about slightly smaller than Sheffield, but it's, you know, it will be in the, in the top of 20, maybe bigger than Bournemouth. It's, you know, it's, it's a pretty big place. It's not a small town, yeah, except in the context of Lagos. Yeah, which is like, like, I mean, Lagos is now, I think, something like, I mean, they don't know. It's part of the problem, but it's, it's as I understand it, it's meant to be about 20 million people. I hear that kind of number which as well. Is, which is, you know, and that's, that's come within the last 20 or 30 years, right? That's an enormous rate of growth. Absolutely. Okay, so what do we do about this? Like, what, what can we actually do if people are going to keep moving to cities regardless of policies intended to stop them? And what they're likely to find there are, are these kind of, you know, informal settlements with, with pretty basic infrastructure. What can the, the world actually kind of do to address this problem? So I guess the first thing is that there's a real need to strengthen and support local governments. Local governments are responsible for almost all of the services and infrastructure that could tackle poverty as we think about it in terms of day-to-day -day deprivations. They're responsible for building paved roads, drains, sewers, piped water, uh, sometimes expanding the electricity grid. A lot of these things in partnership with utilities, but very much with coordinated and negotiated by local government. Emergency services like ambulances and fire brigades, sometimes police and security. All of these things that mean that day-to-day -day life is, is made difficult could be addressed, often without huge amounts of resources, by local governments. Uh, I think two things are, are needed for that to be possible. The first thing is there needs to be a shift at all levels of government in some of these countries that urbanisation is an opportunity, that if managed well, like it has been relatively well in, in, say, China, it's an opportunity to just accelerate and drive economic growth and to create wealth that can be used to develop the whole country, smaller urban areas, rural areas. But that economic growth requires workers who are healthy and productive, and it requires entrepreneurs at all levels of income, uh, whether those providing bottles of water and doing waste picking or whether those building the big IT giants of, of the future. So that's, that's a kind of radical shift in mindset. The second thing is that you need national governments that empower local governments, that transfer them enough resources that they can actually do their job. You look at a lot of African cities, and they will have a budget per person per year of, say, $20 a head or less. For, for reference, most British cities like Bristol would have $3,500 per person per head. And they've already got their infrastructure in place. They have their houses and their roads and their, and their drains. And, and British cities are famously weak entities compared to a lot of like you know, American or European ones. So Absolutely. Uh, so Freiburg, tiny little Freiburg in Germany, has about 4500 per head. And... 
a lot of these small and poorer cities are not going to be able to raise the resources themselves. People talk about, you know, empowering them to increase property taxes or uh, introduce congestion charges and that kind of thing. If you have 5,000 people and they all earn less than $5 a day, you have no tax base. It has to be national government that makes sure you have the resources to provide this infrastructure. I mean, how again, I suppose it's difficult to generalise, but are there national governments that are kind of doing this well? Are there those that kind of understand that local empowerment is the key? Or are they all just like, no, it's mine, go away? Right. There's, there's a lot in the second category. <laughs> uh, a couple that jump to mind that are doing a really great job on this, in, in one case very belatedly. So Brazil obviously had this huge drive towards democratisation uh, in the 90s, and a big part of that involved devolving power to local governments and devolving the capacity to raise resources and, and channeling a lot of nationally raised resources down to Brazilian governments. And then that was combi- combined by a lot of experiments by Brazilian cities to encourage encourage the urban poor to take part in decision-making. So Brazil has huge participatory budgeting processes where communities get to decide how local governments spend a proportion of their of their money. And that means that resources get channeled to things that people really need, not your sexy airport outside the city or your seven-lane highway, but your sewer or your drain or servicing a plot of land so that people can build their own houses if necessary. Uh, the, the, nas- the other national government that's doing well in its own right, as opposed to just by resourcing local governments, is, is Thailand. I, I hesitate a bit there because obviously Thailand has recently had a military coup and one doesn't necessarily want to hold it up as the best practice example. But for, for a couple of decades now, Thailand has had a fantastic program in place where it routinely supports organizations of the urban poor to upgrade informal settlements within wider urban plans. So they're linked to the new transport systems that are being built. They're linked to the construction of hospitals and schools to provide services to these people. Uh, And the national government has set up all sorts of financing schemes and policies that really make it very inclusive. It's not perfect, but it's the world's best example, I would say. Mm. I I don't know enough about Thai politics, I'm afraid. I don't know anything about Thai politics. I, to be honest with you, I didn't even know there'd been a military coup, so well done me. Um, but something that strikes me about what you said about Brazil is that this happened at the point of democratisation, really. And it's like, I'm just wondering, is it did it suddenly become politically expedient to kind of empower people because suddenly like the benefits of that would flow back to the politics the politicians making those decisions rather than like suddenly it's not all about ball boys it's about votes really there is definitely a need with these things to make it clear that there are opportunities for political wins through these kind of things the problem is that realistically a lot of people who also vote don't want the urban poor in their cities so in a lot of indian cities Uh, organized communities who are middle or upper class have been very effective at organizing to keep slum dwellers out. And they vote too, and they campaign actively, and they might donate to political parties. And so I, I think you're right to say that creating a clear political motive to include and empower the urban poor, making that sustainable across different parties, whatever their their ideologies or whatever their political base, um, is a precondition for, for tackling urban poverty at scale. About six months back, we had a guest on this podcast. Uh, I don't know if you know Daniel Knowles, who was the uh, Economist Africa correspondent. Mm. Um, but he was sort of laying out his theory that Africa was seeing sort of urbanization without industrialization. And, you know, it was sort of different from what had happened before in, in Europe and North America and then Asia, where like you could see the urbanization was being tied very closely to growth. And that didn't seem to be happening in, in much of sub Saharan Africa in the same way. 
I just kind of wanted to, to run that past you and ask if that sounded, if that idea was familiar. Yeah, it is. And I think it's, I think it's unfortunately very true. Uh, Africa is urbanizing at a much lower level of income than most countries historically have. And that is thought to be due to a couple of factors. One factor has, this is, one factor is that there are a lot of push factors in rural Africa. So, for example, a lot of conflicts in Liberia and Sierra Leone led people to flee the countryside and move to cities, uh, even if that wasn't because they had enough education or enough capital to, to turn that into an economic opportunity. The second reason is that actually there is a lot of wealth, but it's not being turned into jobs or not being turned into widespread opportunities. So uh, a lot of African countries' economic growth is driven through resource extraction, um, oil being a very dominant example at the moment. And that creates a wealthy elite with a lot of demand for services who can pay wages, but it's not industrial growth. The consequence of having this kind of consumer-led growth rather than this producer-led growth is that it's much harder for low-income workers to organize, to demand better conditions. It's much harder for them to develop sets of technical skills and know-how that could allow them to go off and be entrepreneurs in their own right or to develop separate businesses. Um, and people are much more precarious to a very powerful, wealthy elite who dominate, who, who are responsible for this employment and control all of this wealth and pay most of the tax base. And so I don't think it's a universal trend across sub-Saharan Africa. There are a few places where urban growth is being well-managed and is starting to create a lot of opportunity. Ghana, Namibia uh, are both good examples there. But there are definitely some countries that are seeing urban growth without any industrial growth and serious poverty and inequality are resulting from that. Would you like to give any examples there? So I think the, the starkest example would obviously be the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Kinshasa is just a huge city. Again, no one knows quite how huge, but it's not because of vast industrialization in the Congo. It's because of mineral wealth and conflict. I mean, yeah, can you, I was one of the, the things that most surprised me when I first did this job and was first trawling through lists of demographic data and so on is Kinshasa is probably bigger than London now in terms of population. There's probably more people there. And, and yeah, it's it's... That's all happened very quickly, and it remains kind of internationally obscure for a megacity. Like, people just don't realise there's, like, 10, 15 million people living there. Yeah. And you ask anyone about, uh, because I'm a giant nerd, one of my favourite things is, can you name the megacities in this particular region? Which ones do you think will be the megacities of the future? Kinshasa is always the one that slips through the gaps. Yeah, it's just on nobody's kind of lists of major world cities, is it? But it's absolutely enormous. Okay, let's try and... I want to wrap up in a second, but let's try and wrap up on a sort of happier note. You said that Ghana and Namibia are two countries that are doing a bit better about this. Can you, like, give us some, some examples of what's going right? Ghana has made a very concerted effort to try and build small pockets of manufacturing. It has made a concerted effort to establish forums at different levels, local, regional and national, where a whole range of different stakeholders can feed into urban decision-making, whether that's spatial plans or what kind of infrastructure should be built. Uh, and between those two things, you are starting to turn cities into places of inclusive economic opportunity. Ghana's recently graduated into lower middle income as opposed to low-income countries. Uh, and so a lot of countries across Africa are looking to, to those particular fronts to, to try and emulate them in the future. I'm not saying Ghana is perfect, but... It's definitely offering some hope for West Africa. Okay, cool. Um, and if, if anyone wanted to get in touch with you to kind of talk about your work, do you want to sort of tell them how? Yeah. Uh, please do. There is nothing I love more, as you will have heard from my megacity quiz uh, <laughs> tendencies. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter 
at s underscore Colin Brander, or please do email me. My address is on the IIED website. I look forward to debating cities of the world. Sarah, thank you very much. Thank you, John. are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.